0: Welcome to History Reimagined, where history becomes fiction and fiction becomes history. You are listening to part four of the Deha series. My brothers and sisters of the stars, welcome. I hope this broadcast finds you well. I have a question for you, my listener. What was the name of Sindel's mother? You are forgiven if you cannot recall. For Razia herself missed that moment of Harkis' story, when Nero Makuro wed his political bride, Alicia Salvage. The family name Salvage is a point of importance, for Vulcan was also a Salvage, none other than Alicia's older brother, which makes Razia and Sindel cousins. They grew up together in the city of Kima Prime, Nero's capital, however the war separated them in more ways than one. It took many years, but at long last they would be reunited. This is History Reimagined, and you are listening to Dalton Bates. On this podcast, we reimagine history through fiction. Join us as we explore the history of distant futures, of magical pasts, and the stories of those who have been forgotten to history. Sit back and enjoy a history lesson like no other. To Laurel, Harkis Xavier was a revolutionary hero, one of the most distinguished soldier commanders of Nero's armies. It saddened him greatly to hear of his passing. To Razia, however, Harkras was a murderer. She still couldn't understand how he had been able to kill that young woman so unceremoniously. Instead of lingering on their difference of opinion, Razia said that after Harcris was killed, she was taken by Sindel's guards to the Empress's audience chamber. She went on to explain to Laurel how the chamber was designed to belittle the guest. The path in front of her sloped upward in a spiral. It was steep and slippery, demanding that one climbed it on all fours, and even then the progress was at times elusive. The only part of the chamber that wasn't black was a viewing deck, situated behind a glass wall at the far end. Inside this adjacent chamber there were beautiful lounges and tables overflowing with delicacies. The chamber was populated by well-dressed onlookers, who satisfied themselves with finger food and chilled drinks. Razia continued by describing how they looked at her, how safely behind their glass pane they watched her as though she was some terrible beast from whom a distance should be kept, how even with that distance between them Razia could still make out their eyes full of condemnation, such as should be reserved for the yoke of criminals. She was an exotic animal, trapped within a cage for the viewing pleasure of idle kings. The viewing chamber would elevate upward as she climbed, following her pace, seeding the belief inside of Razia that the spiral chamber continued ever upward, until finally, it ended. nowhere. As though a mirage emerging from desert heat, I was standing meters away from our Empress. I stepped up onto her platform. Sindel wasn't upon the black metallic throne situated at the center of the dais, but rather she sat cross-legged on the floor with her eyes closed. The moment my eyes fell upon her, she spoke. Ah, Razia, you are finally here. Please, come join me. Hesitantly, I approached, seating myself opposite her. It was then that she opened her eyes, wide and staring. For the longest moment, I was consumed by her gaze, captured in her world. Razia, do you remember me? I wanted to say yes. Perhaps that's what Sindel wanted, but I shook my head. What do you remember? Her question hung in the air as I chose my words carefully. There was blackness, and then an Arbos in ruins. I walked into the world anew, without memories or a name. Ever since, I lived a hollow life without purpose. With nothing to lose, I decided to return to Arbos. I have learnt that I do have a name, and it is Razia Bori Selvage. What else have you learnt? Sindel's expression of sincere interest loosened my lips. I am crawled. I am the child of Electa Bori a hero of humanity, and her husband, Vulcan Selvage. What do you know of your father? I know when he was human, he was a good man. And when he was crawled, I was silent. Razia, there is something you don't know. Yes, you are crawled, but that is not where the story ends. During the outbreak on Kima, you were infected along with your father. You both became crawled. You stayed by his side, and Razia, you continued to stay by his side, even as he began to pursue a campaign of genocide. You were there when Vulcan transformed worlds into flame. You were there when Vulcan ordered the execution of millions. You were there when Vulcan destroyed Arbos. I could not speak. I had no words to utter. Only images. Bursting into view like flashes of lightning, only offering me a glimpse. But a glimpse was enough. I bore witness with all my senses to the bodies, of thousands upon thousands, stacked on top of each other, forming great mountains. Each and every one I, I could see had died in a state of horror and sorrow. I wanted to cry out for someone to take me from this nightmare, but all I did was turn around to see her. Razia walked through the mass graveyard in her red armor. She paused as though becoming aware of my presence. Her helmet retracted, and with unfeeling eyes, she continued on her way. Sindel rose to her feet, snapping me back into the real world. She walked towards her throne. Razia Abori Selvage, is not the name you were always known by. Razia the Red Witch. Your hands are soaked with the blood of countless innocent men, women, and children. You did not discriminate. You facilitated and participated in a genocide that will be recorded in our history as our darkest hour. Those words... Syno McEarl, empress of our galactic empire, planted herself in her throne. This is your crime, Razia. How do you plead? Of a sudden I was no longer with Sindel in her palace. I was a child. My father scruffled my hair. I looked up at him, and with a smile he said, Don't worry. Mom will be fine. She's out there serving humanity. I'm sure one day you will follow in her footsteps. I turned to face the glass wall of our apartment. I surveyed the sprawling city before me, and yet there was order to be found. All structures centered around the large parliamentary edifice, which had been built in the fashion of a pyramid tower from the earthen period. The thought occurred to me that my mother was there, in that building of power. I was filled with pride. But then, a blistering crack resounded through the air. A moment of peace ensued, but it vanished rather quicker than it had risen. The structures surrounding the parliament began to collapse in clouds of rubble, colored red by fire. A moment later a side of the parliament started to fall in on itself. That was when the second explosion came, sending a shock wave across the entire city. It shattered the glass wall in front of me, knocking me to my feet. Vulcan was by my side in an instant, cradling me, whispering words of comfort. When it seemed like the worst had passed, he rose to his feet, lifting me up, but all was not well. There was something in the air. With each breath, I could feel it slither down my throat, into my blood. With each passing moment, it felt as though something was growing inside of me. I looked at my father through eyes wet with tears. He forced a reassuring smile as he collapsed onto his knees. His smile faded. His eyes closed. I watched as his whole body started to twitch, and then I could feel as I too began to lose control... All I could feel was pain, excruciating pain in every inch of my body. Something was trying to escape from beneath my skin. Something was growing out of me, leaving me hollow inside. I cried out, but I couldn't hear my own voice, only feel the thumping in my ears. Be still, Razia. Everything will be okay. It is a promise from me to you. With his eyes still scrunched shut, he reached out his hand. It was shaking violently now. I reached out my own hand, draining all my energy just to force my body to obey. Our fingers touched and then we clasped each other tight. I couldn't feel a thing. But even that couldn't wipe the fragile smile from my lips. In spite of everything, I heard him. Like a madman trying to scream over a storm, but I heard him. Razia, I will never let you go. they'll shattered the dream, or perhaps it was a memory. Razia. I found myself standing before her elevated throne, looking up at her, and she looking down upon me. Razia, do you understand that you have committed heinous crimes against humanity? Do you understand that these crimes warrant punishment of the highest degree? I opened my mouth to protest, but I could not find the words. As empress, as the highest authority in the Sindalian Empire, it is I who will decide your punishment. A measured silence. It is my decision that you will be pardoned for all wrongdoings committed before my liberation of Arbos. The Red Witch died during that battle, and the Razia before me now was born. Sindal lifted her gaze. She was now speaking to the audience she had gathered here for this very moment. Razia has no memory of committing her crimes. But more than that, she is repulsed by their barbarity. If I were to punish her, I would not be punishing her for her crimes, no. Her only crime would be existing. Her crime would be being crawled. I need not remind anyone here that Razia did not ask to become infected by the virus. Another plain truth, I founded my empire upon a simple principle, that all people of all creeds and ideologies, of all races and traditions, were welcome. I accepted my father's revolutionaries. I accepted soldiers and commanders alike from the defunct army of peace. I even accepted the Kral to forsook the Kral Ascension movement in its pursuit of supremacy. I will not compromise that principle, and so I ask that you join with me to welcome Razia Abori Selvage into our empire. emptied her schedule to show me her empire in all its finest colors, from architectural feats within the palace dome to advancements in scientific knowledge to live performances from the most beautiful dancers in the galaxy. It felt as though the galactic empire was being put on hold for me, though that was far from the truth. Sindel alluring me into her web of power could potentially solve one of the most pressing concerns for the empire, While some Kral did abandon their movement after Sindel's demolition of their city on Arbos, many who survived did not. With more determination than ever, they found refuge from the Empire and plotted for another war. Things had been different. I imagine I would have become the Imperial ambassador to the Krald. After all, I was the daughter of their former leader. Perhaps they would listen, or at least listen long enough for Sindel to finish what she started. As her tour of the palace came to an end, Sindel showed me the living quarters reserved for nobility. One of these could be yours, Razia. My palace is your new home. Everything began to fade away. An opulent bedchamber supplanted by a battlefield. I faced myself. She stood there in her red armor, facing me. Razia the Red Witch. Slowly. She removed her helmet and in that moment, she became my reflection. She looked like me in every way. Her eyes were my eyes, her lips were my lips, her placid smile was mine. I was her. She was me. I turned to face Sindel. If I have murdered, I should be punished. All those who were dead because of me didn't get a second chance. Sindel held my gaze. It is about more than you. You must become a symbol of tolerance. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of peace. Sindel reached out her hand. Razia, join me. And with tolerance we will find peace for the galaxy. Together we will show that humans and crawled can live in harmony. Two women will prove to the men of the past that their ways of intolerance only led to needless violence. Oh, Razia, if only you knew of their stupidity. I reached out to accept Sindel's hand. Why don't you tell me? With success on Majaka came greater ambitions for Nero Makuro, my father. He looked outward into the galaxy. He had liberated one people, but as he saw it, there were many, countless more who longed to be freed. However, he knew if he acquiesced to democratic sentimentality, he would be chained to Majaka by his fellow leaders who would be content catering to the appetites of their new constituents. The revolution would die a slow death. Nero believed that the revolution needed him as its leader and needed his will to be unchallenged. As long as he remained in the political process, he knew he would not find the kind of power he sought. And thus, the People's Revolutionary Front was born. An amalgamation of several youth movements that, under Nero's instruction, quickly became militarized. These young men and women swore allegiance to Nero Makuro. Not the revolution. Certainly not to Maja Khan, its new government. Nero became his own man. Separate from the parties of politics, with his own agenda. And now with his own private army. At first, the government intended to constrain him, to temper his revolutionary zeal. But with the PRF under his direct command, no soft power could be exerted against him. And the alternative simply wasn't an option. With AP warships never too far away, the unrest caused by a violent confrontation with Nero would be an invitation for them to return. And so, Nero's plan proceeded. The next stage involved sending out PRF ambassadors to other worlds. Their stated purpose was to educate people about the revolution. In actuality, these ambassadors were military men and women who brought with them tactics and weapon designs to assist rebel groups of all shades, which were already trying to overthrow their AP loyalist governments. In order to prevent further nullifications of the SPC Accords, the AP sanctioned increased use of military force to deal with these rebellions. However, the Army of Peace went one step further, subverting their own doctrine of peace in order to explicitly target the Neronian Revolution. Where their schools once promoted positive messages about securing a peaceful universe in which all humans could flourish, they now drilled into their students that Nero was a psychotic fanatic who wanted to create disorder for its own sake, and that his nihilism would bring the galaxy to ruin. The AP no longer talked about a brighter future. Rather, their only objective became avoiding the supposed disaster that would ensue a triumphant Nero. My father was no better. He forged his own propaganda machine to depict the AP as a tyrant, crushing protesters underfoot, where on the ground said protesters were actually soldiers carrying weapons of war. To my father, the difference didn't matter. The AP wanted to hold on to its power for power's sake, and therefore, anything they did in pursuit of that end was illegitimate. All I can say, as a ruler myself, the military response from the Army of Peace against the rebellions was understandable justifiable for any government that believed in its duty to maintain its authority. In a turn of events, both sides publicly announced that they would commence negotiations. Even so, I heard from my father's own lips that he was not seeking peace with the AP. He said such things as the revolution could only be complete when the AP was no more. I have no doubt that AP officials were parroting him on their side of the aisle. Peace could not be returned to humankind until Nero was behind bars, or better yet, dead. Nevertheless, the negotiations happened. Why, you ask? On my father's side, many undecided leaders wanted to believe in his revolutionary dream. But his willingness to confront the AP directly had resulted in more restrictions and more violence. These leaders had been inspired by the peaceful resistance on Majakah and as such did not welcome the aggressive actions of the PRF, instead opting for dialogue with the AP. Nero went into the negotiations believing that he could advertise this to those who doubted his approach. And when the negotiations inevitably broke down, he could point to the AP and say that it was them who didn't want peace. I am sure it does not surprise you to hear that the AP's motivations to enter into negotiations were not dissimilar. The hegemony of the Army of Peace had been sustained by their success in upholding peace. However, now whenever someone heard about the AP in the news, it was in the context of conflict and violence. The negotiations were an effort to reignite the idea that the AP was the answer for whomever truly wanted peace. And when the negotiations inevitably broke down, they could point to Nero and say that it was him who didn't want peace. When the negotiations broke down, tensions rose. On numerous planets, rebels had found victory, and Nero traveled to these worlds without delay, becoming closely involved in establishing their new governments. He granted positions of power to people who had lost family or honor to the AP, guaranteeing that compromise with the enemy wouldn't happen when he wasn't looking. He wanted absolute opposition to the AP. And yet, at the same time, he still his message of peace, saying that so-called peace under the AP's regime was empty, because only when people are free can there truly be peace. He would travel the galaxy, always heavily guarded, visiting sympathetic worlds. He would give them speeches about peace. All the while, the PRF was building up its military capacity and readying for war. On the Army of Peace's side, they were just as ready for war. With all their resources and tactical experience, they were evidently the superior military force. At current, if it came to war, Nero would be defeated. However, to truly vanquish the Neronian Revolution, the AP were aware that they would have to get their hands dirty. They would have to send their troops in every neighborhood with rebel sympathizers to truly seed the idea in every mind that the Army of Peace wasn't going anywhere. Such an operation would leave behind a trail stained with innocent blood. And yet, from what I know, that was not a pressing concern. The only reason the AP refrained from declaring war was their concern of a backlash that would make administration more costly. Neither side wanted to make the move first. My father sought to revolve this stalemate by recruiting Beal who after the victory on Majaka had remained in the shadows, continuing a clad-stained campaign of violence against the AP. He had continued to develop the virus that would soon become the Kral and it was wreaking more and more havoc among AP soldiers. They had no defense against it, and once an attack had occurred, nothing could prevent the ripples of fear and paranoia from traveling to every corner of the AP superstructure. AP non-military officials never felt safe. Even though they were rarely Beoflin's targets, soldiers returning from the front lines had nightmares that they were infected. Commanders isolated themselves from their troops, knowing that the betrayal of a single soldier meant their near-certain demise. In the beginning, my father had rejected the methods of Beoflin, viewing them as substanteless. While he pursued a revolution, Beoflin was merely treading the well-traveled path of vengeance. However, as the years passed, Nero had come to see from a perspective adjacent to Beoflin's. Destroying the AP became a priority above all others. My father justified his correspondence with Beoflin to me as a necessity of the times. But I knew that he had no qualms dealing with a terrorist, as long as that terrorist was an enemy of the Army of Peace. And so, together Nero and Beoflin planned to attack the AP at her heart, to deliver a blow that would provoke a truly awesome response. For them, their attack should accomplish two things. It should silence the moderate voices in the AP, and it should provide the extremists with a reason to call for all-out war. With anyone who opposed them, Beoflin, with Nero's assistance, would attack Arbos. And when the AP attacked Nero's capital city of Kima Prime in retaliation, my father would have had all the justification he needed to fight a just war. One of Nero's aides was so repulsed by such a plan that the details found themselves in the hands of the AP. With this information, the AP decided to stage an offer of peace. They announced their intention to sue for peace with the PRF, making known a list of concessions they would deliver if Nero ended hostilities. Nero didn't buy in, but even if it just for the publicity, it was something he could not ignore. And so, it was arranged that an AP delegation would make the journey to Kima to negotiate a peace deal. However, by accepting this with the whole galaxy watching, Nero isolated Beoflin, who had no interest in peace with the AP. And so, unbeknownst to my father, Beoflin hatched his own plan. Beoflin would not only destroy the AP envoy, but he would also deliver a blow to Nero's capital making it clear to the universe where he stood on the issue of compromise with the enemy. When the AP vessel landed on Kima, all attention was directed on their delegates as they made their way to the Kiman Parliamentary Building. Before they could enter the Parliament, an explosion gave birth to a crawl creature. The PRF soldiers present were not equipped to deal with a virus outbreak, and so it spread transforming men into monsters that tore other men apart, whose bodies became infected, and the nightmarish cycle continued. In time, the outbreak would have been contained within the inner blocks of the city, as Bielflin planned, for he did not wish to deal Nero a mortal blow. But Bielflin had no idea that the AP vessel nearby carried an airborne version of the virus. AP scientists had so far been unable to develop a vaccine for the virus, but through their research, they had been able to further weaponize it by making it airborne. Perhaps that had been their goal all along, and such efforts at protection were never a priority. Either way, once it was released, everyone would believe it was Bioflin's attack that had infected all of Kima, but in truth it would be the Army of Peace that orchestrated this disaster. All the death and destruction was part of their plan, as they waited with warships ready to bomb the planet to oblivion, sending Nero to a fiery hell and his revolution with him. Afterwards, the AP could simply argue that it was a necessary measure to contain the virus. On that day, my father wanted me by his side. He wanted me to witness the lies of the AP firsthand. And so I was in the parliament when the outbreak occurred. We were escorted to a safe house. Once safely inside, I remember when my father found out that Beauflin had been behind the attack. He descended into a well of anger. As he roared at the guards and slammed his fists against the wall, in that moment I felt that he would have given his own life and mine without hesitation just to see Beoflin die in pain. Such was the look in his eyes. He wanted out of the safe house to organize his response. That was the last time I saw my father. We parted ways. His vehicle was attacked by a crawl. I was told that he died quickly, but I choose to believe that he was transformed into one of those monsters. Such would have been the hatred in his heart when the end came for him. The vehicle I was in made it to safety. With my mother, I left the planet. I remember looking back at the cityscape of Kima Prime, watching as my home went up in flames. I was full of rage. No, it was simply frustration at my father for bringing this fate down upon himself. He dealt with the devil and paid the price, but we all would have to bear the cost, for the outbreak had begun. But my ear was not only directed at my father, for the Army of Peace was also to blame. In another life, in another universe, I could imagine myself becoming an administrator, ensuring that their peace and order were upheld, and yet their fundamental weakness would have remained, their inability to deal with opposition. In their minds, they stood for peace and security, and as such, anyone who opposed them must be morally corrupt, and any other claim to power completely illegitimate. They became so absorbed in their conflict with Nero that they forgot what the conflict was about, what they stood for in their state of oblivion, they gave birth to the crawled and the ensuing genocide. I had only been a child, and yet I could see plainly the deficiencies of these adult leaders. They believed so wholly in their own righteousness that anyone who opposed them had to be an enemy of the universe itself. An enemy of the universe doesn't deserve to exist. An enemy of the universe must be removed from existence. And so it became their sole duty to eradicate this great enemy that only existed in their minds. Razia. No one learnt from the mistakes perpetrated on Kima. The Army of Peace proclaimed that it had to bomb the planet to remove the crawl Scourge. And so they did, without regard for the human lives still on the surface. Even in its fractured state, the People's Revolutionary Front managed to appoint a new leader, who proclaimed that with such action the AP was declaring war. And so he rallied the troops and declared war himself. All the while, your father was forming the Crawl Ascension Movement, and once he had his army of crawled, he swore to eradicate all of humankind. There was no going back, no changing course. War had begun. <laughs> was over. It had ended with the establishment of the Sindalian Empire. Now the day had come to celebrate the tenth anniversary of that empire. I walked beside Sindel and her full escort. She was encircled by six guards with attire of opulent design, with bright colors and exaggerated armor. Surrounding these guards were men and women of ceremonial rank, many from the former AP and PRF. And behind them were Sindel's advisors, dressed in their plain white garbs with gold rimming. And finally protecting us all were the enormous golden defenders. Somehow I was in the center of it all. Sindel told me that she wanted me by her side when she delivered her speech. She told me that I would be a symbol for the future. She told me that she would show her people how to forgive the sins of the past. And that I would be forgiven. She told me, but all I could feel was the beating of my heart. I had convinced myself that this moment would never come, but I was here, and it was happening. I stood on the Empress's balcony. I looked out to behold a crowd and hundreds of thousands. They welcomed Sindel with a lyrical chant. The most fanatical among them screaming the words, if only for the chance that their empress would hear their voice. I had heard the song before, sung in classrooms. But where then? It, it had been a formality. This was. religious. As silence returned, Sindel lifted her hands to greet the crowd. Beneath her pleasant smile, there was something more sincere. Whether it was a sense of exhaustion or an emotion more sinister, I couldn't tell. All I could think was something about all this was wrong. It reminded me of Maurice's narrative, of Nepal's followers. It was then that I felt a coldness inside of me. Sindel looked at me, and with those emperor's eyes, she flooded my world with warmth. I felt, even if only for a moment, that I belonged by her side. I tried to hang on to that feeling, but the longer I gazed into the reflection in her eyes, the more I came to realize that the girl in that reflection was icy cold. As cold as death. I felt a pang in my chest. Slowly I lifted my hand to my heart. There was no beat. I looked out across the silent crowd, but they were all beginning to fade away. The world before me was transforming into a white canvas with only the faintest of gray outlines. And then, splashes of red. My head was pounding. Black sludge began to ooze across my canvas until it consumed everything. Everything besides Sindel calling my name. Razia! 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 Until that too was gone. You have been listening to the History Reimagined Podcast. Dejas will be back in two weeks' time with the final installment of the series, Part 5. There is a possibility, however small, that you, yes, I am talking to you, that you enjoy this little podcast of ours. Okay, let's be honest. If you've gotten this far, it is pretty certain that you like what we do. However, the future is uncertain, and so to make sure we can continue to produce this podcast, we have started a Patreon page. If you don't know what Patreon is, it allows you to support creators financially on a per-episode basis. As a way to say thank you for your generosity, we have set up rewards for different levels of support. At $1 an episode, you are a voter, which means you can decide between two topics for the next series. At $2, you are a questioner, which means you can submit questions about the series, which Levi will answer in a bonus episode. At $5, you are a muse, which means you can suggest topics for upcoming series and discuss your ideas with Levi. At $10, you are a line skipper, which means instead of having to wait two weeks for each new episode, as soon as the series is completed, Complete, you can listen to all of it. You can find our Patreon by going to patreon.com/slash history reimagined. Any and all support is greatly appreciated. We hope we can make this podcast bigger and better. We also have a Twitter account at reimagined pod. Over there we will post updates and more. You can contact us with questions and feedback. We will respond. That's a promise. History Reimagined is narrated by Dalton Bates and written by Levi Hirsch. The intro song is On and On by Charlotte O.C. Our theme music is Naive by Sergei Kermisinov. Until next time, my fair listener. No, no, no. Time is wasted, wasted Oh, dear. no, 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 no. I tried. I tried.